Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Money Girl Podcast. My name is Laura Adams. I'm a personal finance expert and award-winning author based in Austin, Texas. I've been producing this show for over eight years, and my goal is simple, to help you master your money so you can live rich and love the journey. Each week, I bring you an interview, a listener Q&A, or cover a topic from a wide variety of important financial issues, like saving more money, spending less, investing for retirement, building credit, managing debt, insurance, real estate, money mindset, and a whole lot more. Since there are so many shows in the archive, we've limited the feed in iTunes and other podcast aggregators to about the most recent nine months. But you can read transcripts or stream audio from the entire archive in the Money Girl section at quickanddirtytips.com. This is episode number 483, called The Simple Truth Behind Growing Rich. I'm so excited about today's show because it's a really terrific interview I did with Jay Papazan, the co-author of one of my favorite books, The One Thing, The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results. It's been at the top of several bestseller lists, and it's just packed with real-world actionable advice about how to know what to focus on in life for success. I've mentioned this book in at least two or three shows. Most recently, a couple of months ago, in episode number 477 called How to Stay Disciplined and Do More With Your Money. I mentioned it because it inspired the entire show. The advice is so applicable to having a clear financial objective and staying on track to build wealth. And I got a lot of positive feedback about that show, so I thought, why not have Jay on to discuss more about the book? Plus, he also lives in Austin, and I think it's a lot of fun to connect with local authors and podcasters. No matter if you're looking for more financial success or clarity about how to live life with more purpose, I think you'll get a ton of tips and inspiration from our conversation. Here are a few areas we cover. We talk about how to practice goal setting to the now. We cover the negative effects hyperbolic discounting has on your financial future. And if you're not sure what that is, you'll just have to keep listening. We talk about lies we've been taught about things like willpower, multitasking, and work-life balance. You'll learn about productivity killers that you've got to eliminate to be more effective. We cover how to identify and stay focused on your number one priority every single day. And we talk about the ultimate question to ask yourself to make really big improvements in your financial life and more. 
So I won't keep you waiting. Here's my interview with Jay Papazan. So Jay, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you and your audience. Yeah, tell me a little bit about why you wanted to write The One Thing. How did you get involved in that terrific project? You know, my co-author Gary and I at the time were working on a course for, you know, he's the founder of Keller Williams and I was running his university at that time. And it was for um, agents who were looking to take their business to the next level. And we've worked almost two years on it. And Gary liked the course. He liked the content. He said, can I take this home for the weekend and noodle? And he came back having written like an eight page essay called The Power of One. He just was, quote, going to spice it up. And it was really a lot of the fundamental aspects of the book. And I've been in publishing for almost 20 years now. And I remember reading that and going, this is a book. And after he read it and we talked about it, he goes, this is a book. So that it took us almost five years from the inception point, which was just a short essay talking about why people who were able to bring priority to their lives succeed at a higher level than those who don't. That was the genesis, just that little essay. Love it. Well, I have to tell you, the book is definitely one of my favorites. There's so much great information packed in. When it comes to finances, people are, you know, sometimes have a difficult time setting priorities. There's so much that they can be doing, so many different investments. Let's say a listener is really trying to focus in on what their priorities should be, you know, how they should set financial goals. What are some big level overarching ways that they can begin to think about how to set goals and how to think about the financial life that they dream for themselves, that they want to live? Sure. I mean, I love that question. And at one point in my career, we wrote a book on investing. And I remember how bewildering it is if you've never, I mean, I was an English French major. If you've never paid attention to this stuff, you can get overwhelmed really quickly and it's hard to identify out of all of this stuff I'm just learning about what matters. So I think fundamentally, if you're going to be making decisions about what's important or not, knowing where you're headed is huge. So one of the the essential parts of the goal planning we describe in the book, I don't know if you remember it, it's called goal setting to the now. And there's this idea out there and it's an economic principle that sounds really fancy, fancy, but it's actually pretty easy to understand. It's called hyperbolic discounting. And it basically says that the farther in the future a goal is, the less power it has over your behavior today. And they, they prove it all the time. They'll say, I'll give you $100 today or $200 tomorrow. And everybody's like, I'll take $200 tomorrow. But if they change the time fr- frame from $100 today to $200 in a year, almost everyone will take the $100. And that's crazy. I mean, name me any investment where I will double my money every year and we'll all be wealthy, right? But it's just a year away and people end up making bad choices. So the way it works is you go out and you set a someday goal. I remember my first big financial goal, my wife and I sat down and we kind of thought we were crazy for asking it. We thought, what would it look like if we were millionaires? And so that was that way out there someday goal. And then you ask the question, where would we have to be in five years to feel like we're really on track to hit that goal? And we wrote down some metrics. You know, for us, we felt like our net worth, and we can explain that if we feel like we need to define that. Basically, after we subtract all of the things we owe, what we own is worth, it had to be a certain number. And then you back up from your five-year goal. Well, based on our five-year goal, where would we have to be in one year to be on track for that? And then you go from your one year back to a month. 
well, where would we have to be in a month to be on track for our year? And where would we have to be in a week to be on track for our month? And instead of saying, where would we have to do this week to be on track to be a millionaire? Nobody knows that answer. But when you inch backwards, you know, you're really throwing a dart at the wall at five years. That's kind of crystal ball stuff, but it's probably at least in the right direction. Most people are getting very much in the ballpark for a year and they can make great decisions about where they need to be in a year this month. And so it's a technique of bringing that future a little closer to now so that we make better decisions day to day. And I don't know, I don't know about you, I see a lot of people not building wealth, not because they don't have a great plan, but because they don't know how to operate today on that plan. Right. So they're not connecting the future with what is happening right now, what they can do in this moment or in this day or hour uh, to make that future happen. And and it is difficult when you think about retirement, you know, especially if you're in your 20s or 30s. Retirement is a long way away. And a lot of people think, oh, gosh, I'll get there when I get that promotion. That's when I'll start investing or I'll right. when I start making a certain amount of money, then I'll have enough to start investing. And the reality is just putting away small amounts today, forming the habit of investing is really much more powerful to achieving your goal than procrastinating and then waiting for some magical time, you know, to appear because believe me, that that time never just magically appears. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll recommend another book if you haven't read it. It's called The Defining Decade by um, Dr. Meg Jay. And one of the things that blew my mind, it's in the introduction, is that between age 25 and 35, for the average person, that's where 75% of their income, income growth happens. And so many people in their 20s kind of feel like these are my years to be free. These are my years to not have those responsibilities, and they don't understand that the decisions they're making are absolutely laying a platform for their life. So she had statistical proof for what you're saying. That's, so it's, it's very pertinent. Not that they manage every penny, but they build really powerful habits now. Yeah. Making good financial decisions definitely takes willpower, right? So having w- the, w- the willpower not to overspend when you see something fantastic that you want to buy and maybe, you know, you just don't 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 have it in the budget right now. Uh, it takes willpower to save and invest consistently. What tips do you have for us to leverage our willpower? Oh, I think the first thing people have to do is understand it. And so willpower is the ability to say yes to what you need to do, but it takes just as much energy to say no to all the other things. Um, one of the studies we, we covered in the book is just how fragile it is. And there's a guy named Baba Shiv, and he got a couple hundred graduate students and told them they were going to do a test of memory. And one group had to memorize randomly seven numbers, or the other group was two numbers. And they had as long as they wanted to memorize it, then they would walk down a hall and regurgitate the number. Well, of course, anybody, given as long as they want, can memorize a seven-digit number or a two-digit number. The actual experiment wasn't about memory. It was about what happened in the hallway in between. There was a desk set up, and it said, thank you so much for participating in our study. Please choose one of these two free snacks. And it was like fruit or chocolate cake. And if you memorized seven digits instead of two, you were twice as likely to choose chocolate cake. And so the first big aha we had about this ability to say yes or no is that 
when our brain is even under a modest load, right, five extra digits, it can undermine our decision-making. So, you know, I look at that and I think about in the financial world, um, you want to be making financial decisions when you have the most willpower, which tends to be in the morning. So my first advice is if you're making a big decision about your money, do it in the morning when you're fresh, not in the evening. Um, without going down the other research, that's absolutely where we tend to have it the most. And the other one would be don't allow the, all the no's to take up all of your decision making. One of the, the number one reasons so many financial coaches tell people, and I don't know where you are on this, Laura, but we'll say, you know what, why don't you, until you really have a hold on your finances, just leave your credit cards at home. And I think part of the willpower equation in that is if I don't have a credit card, I'm only tempted to spend my money on what I actually have cash for with me. So it's actually limiting the number of financial decisions you're making and therefore hopefully helping you make better ones. So those are the first two things that come to mind. And I know you're familiar with the book. If you want us to go a little deeper, I'm happy to go there. Yeah, I think um, looking at willpower as a limited resource is kind of a game changer for a lot of people when you realize that it's it's not unlimited, that you can, can really tap it out. And by the end of the day, you're much more likely to make bad choices. I know I'm much more likely to eat a cookie or, you know, eat something that I've said I'm not going to eat at, at the end of the day because... I'm tired. I've made a lot of decisions during the day. As you said, my mind, you know, my mind is just kind of full. So like the person that's going to eat the eat the chocolate, I'm more likely to just kind of cave in. And, oh, and- I'm envisioning a pint of ice cream all by <laughs> myself on a Friday night because it's not only the end of the day, it's the end of the week, right? And so we tend to just really make some <laughs> not awesome decisions there. Right. And so maybe for you, if if food is not your issue, but spending is, you know, don't put yourself in a position where you're more likely to overspend. You know, don't take that shopping trip to the mall if you really don't intend and and don't need to buy something, for instance. Um, So, yeah, I think willpower is just a big part of of mastering that and and understanding when you have uh, more strength and when you're more likely to be weak and, and kind of build your life around that. And I do make a lot of decisions and do a lot of work early in the morning just because of this reason. I'm more fresh. I feel like I've got uh, a better opportunity to make good decisions in the morning. So, Jay, how do you focus on productivity and not busyness in your life? And I'm asking for the listeners, but also for myself, because this is something that I always struggle with. I'm, I'm somebody that always wants to get a lot of things done, but not all of them are really important to my goals. So what tips do you have to stay focused on what's most productive? I think that um, the definition of productivity means that you're working in your priorities. So you're, you're doing the things that matter most. And if you're always kind of focused on the things that matter most at any given moment, you're being as productive as you can. And I think the trap we fall into is in our busy lives. And we have a lot of opportunities and obligations. We have these really long to-do lists. We get caught up in checking things off the list instead of doing the thing on the list that's actually more important than all the rest. So I think the number one thing is to just take a moment and identify the priority. And in the book, we talk about Pareto's law. 
um, that 80% of what we want will come from 20% of what we do. And the numbers don't matter. It's just the majority of the outcomes that you want will come from a minority of the things you do. So when you look at what you're going to do this month, this week, or you know today, of all the things that you could do, can you just take a moment and say, all right, on this list, there's a lot of stuff. I'd love to have it all gone for my mental sanity. What are the handful of things that actually matter? And then ask a second question, which has got to do with the title. If I could only get one of these things done today or this week or this month, whatever your time frame is you're considering, what would that be? And that becomes your number one. And if you could do two things, what would the number two be? And that becomes your number two. And essentially, I've watched people do this exercise, and they'll go from a list of 25 things down to like four or five. And the beauty of this is that all that stuff, like if you did them all in one day, like the day before vacation miracle where you just have to get everything done, you know, you come home and you're exhausted, you're in the lather, but you can't always identify that you did important things. This guarantees that you're launching your day with that number one thing. And I'll tell you from a sense of satisfaction, I've observed it in other people when you do that to start your day, you do your number one thing and then your number two thing. You just knock off those top two or three priorities. You can have an amazing day before noon and really kind of be a slacker for the rest of the day. You don't feel the need to rush around. So it not only gets you into your priorities, it also helps you identify all the stuff that it really was okay to say no to. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And in the book, you also talk about the thieves of productivity. One of them we touched on is the uh, inability to say no. So um, if you're not able to, let's say, say no to a a trip to the mall or a, a vacation that you can't afford if folks are trying to invite you into something or get you into a situation where your your budget, your spending plan just doesn't allow for that. You know, that may be a situation where you just need to learn how to say no in order to be a little bit more productive with your finances. And you also talk about fear of chaos, what is that? Can you dig a little deeper into the chaos for us? I think the the first two thieves are the inability to say no, and the second one is fear of chaos. And I think depending on who you are, if you're really a people-oriented person, you're probably struggling with saying no because you don't like to disappoint people and you want to help people. And if you're like me, kind of OCD and want to be the organizer, you don't like for things to get out of control. And both of them can undo you. So the fear of chaos is if you're really focused on your priority, um, you may not get to inbox zero that day. And I'll tell you, inbox zero feels good, but it's not actually a priority in terms of financial success. It just makes things look neat. And so I think what happens is people, if you're geared that way, um, and I definitely am, I can spend time doing organizing work and get ready to work stuff because it makes everything look nice and neat. And I'm actually procrastinating away from the things that matter. And so in the financial world, it would be like, I've got the most amazing 10 year plan and I've got my budget down to the week, but you're actually just planning in order to procrastinate having to do the hard things like cancel a Netflix subscription or do the things that actually are on the plan. Does that make sense? Why do you think we have such a proclivity to do that? Uh, I know this is something I've struggled with. One of my all-time favorite books is The War of Art, and that's Stephen Pressfield. And he the whole book is about battling the resistance, that we have this strange retrograde urge to not do the very things that we know we need the most. 
I think one of the ways, and it's not me, this is not me, it might be Gary or one of the other great gurus, you know, most big success, financial and everything else, isn't actually that complicated. And it's not that difficult. It's just that it's easier to not do those things. And I, I think I, when I'm honest with myself, you know, I knew that I should have eaten differently or I should have saved more. It just is easier not to actually do some of those steps. So I think some of the resistance comes from it's actually taking the, the path of least resistance. You know, instead of doing the right thing, we went with them to the mall and ended up going on a shopping spree or whatever it was. Um, but I don't know. That, that's my off the cuff answer for you. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben and & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Did you know Bridgestone developed a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials? Making a difference today for future generations. That's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Money Girl is sponsored by Claritin. If you're like me and you suffer from allergies, you know this time of year can be pretty rough. There's a lot of sneezing, itchy eyes, congestion, and they can really hold you back from living the life you want to live. Luckily, for those with allergies, you can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This is a product designed for serious allergy sufferers. It's got two ingredients in one pill that relieve allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. This double-action combo of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant relieves all the symptoms that you suffer. And what I love about Claritin D is that it starts working in as little as 30 minutes. Plus, it's non-drowsy, so you can still make the most of your day. I can take Claritin D and then get on the mic and record a podcast without being too congested. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. And another thief of productivity that you cover in the book is poor health habits. And I love that because if we're not healthy, it really just undermines everything else that we're trying to accomplish, even our finances. Do you have any types of healthy habits that you feel have really helped you attain and achieve success? I think that one of the number one tricks I've learned and a lot of what our book is about is like figuring out what your top priority is and making it a habit. I mean, if you had to sum it up, figure out what really matters to what's important to you. What's the activity that's most likely to make that happen? And then how do you actually make that a habit? So we've helped a lot of people build habits in our training and other courses. And the thing I've observed is that just committing to a habit and building a habit has a halo effect in itself. So I've talked to people who just started getting up earlier. They've started making their bed. Things that you don't think of as being huge, but once they realize they can actually take control of this small, you know, little piece of, you know, real estate in their life, their day, 
it gives them, makes them feel empowered to start adding to it. So I just usually tell people, if you're going to build health habits, um, like we talked about before, it takes willpower to do behavior change. And if you listen to the, the lives and these interviews with most successful people, they tend to get up early and they get some really important things done early in the day. So they meditate, they exercise, they eat a healthy breakfast to start their day. Um, and there's some correlation to that and wealth. I can't remember the name of the book. I think it was called Rich Habits. And it was actually in some of the um, stuff that was like marketing around it, not actually in the book. But I want to say something like 79% of millionaires um, got up at least three hours before work. And I immediately stopped on that stat and go, okay, I totally, I totally believe that. Because I understand that they can control that time and there's foundational things they need to do in order to have a really productive day. And I definitely was not in that category until I had kids. I was the guy who showed up with his hair still wet from getting out of the shower. So I'm not trying to be self-righteous, but my kids taught me to wake up early because I was the one who got up to feed them. And I just kept that habit. And my wife and I actually get up very early in the day. And that allows us to do a lot of things that people think they don't have time to do for themselves. Talk a little bit about multitasking and why that is such a lie <laughs> that we have been taught is that's going to make us so productive. You know, I think, again, when you have a lot of stuff on your plate, you, your temptation is to do the stuff that's fast, not necessarily important. And the other one is like, well, if I really want to cover this, I'm just going to do two things at once. And it's been thrown at us as a skill that people have. Um, we're told that women do it better. And there's just not any research to back it up. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, there was a guy named Clifford Nass, and he did a pretty comprehensive study. He's a Stanford professor. And he asked people who were great at multitasking to do a series of six different exercises and people who were said they were not good at it to do it. And he walked into that study thinking that multitaskers had some special ability. And what he discovered was they were, quote, lousy at everything. They were suckers for irrelevancy. On every single measure, people who were multitasking performed worse. And so I could rattle off like nine or 10 studies around this, but basically what's going on is we're not multitasking, we're switching back and forth. And when you switch back and forth, the decision to switch is really quick. You know, squirrel, your, your attention goes there. We're programmed to do that. But then you have to reorient to the new rules of the game. And if you've ever had that moment where you're watching TV or reading a book and someone's talking to you and you're like, oh, I'm sorry, what were you saying? You've experienced reorientation and you're not aware of it, but your brain is shifting and you're not even aware of the time passing. But researchers tell us like 28% of our day is lost to this when you deal with emails and phone calls while you're trying to do your work. So there's a cost in terms of effectiveness. There's a huge cost in time. I mean, what would you do if you got a quarter of your time back? That's just amazing to me to contemplate that. And then um, it actually knocks actual IQ points off of your, your brain ability. Um, they compared IQ tests to people who were focused, to people who were multitasking, to people who were stoned. And the people who were focused scored 10 IQ points higher than the other two groups. No surprise there. What made that study actually kind of go viral is the people who were stoned stored six IQ points higher than the people who were multitasking. So there's just three reasons right there. We don't understand. We understand the science now. It slows you down. You make more mistakes and you do dumb things. Those should be reason enough to avoid it. 
if not all the time, at least when you're doing that number one priority. Yeah, absolutely. There's certainly some things that that we can multitask. You know, we can folding fold, laundry. Exactly. We can we can <laughs> fold the laundry and listen to a podcast or have a conversation. Yeah. But when we're talking about really important things, they definitely deserve our full attention. So I that that's a, been a real mind shift for me because I was one of those believers that it, we had to do everything at once and now I'm much more focused on what is my main task at hand and I think it's really helped me get more results. Jay, let's talk a little bit about having a balanced life. I think this is another lie that we're told that that we can balance work and life just perfectly. You know, it's it's this idea. It actually came about, um, I guess, in the '70s. Women entered the workforce in mass, and when we did kind of a search of the lexicon and past publications, work-life balance showed up a little after that. And the social scientists that we studied and interviewed kind of said, you know, so for a long time, we had the breadwinner and the homemaker. And then women entered the workforce. And by the way, you had now two breadwinners, but who got the second job? And it obviously was women. And so for like a decade, this idea of balance was kind of a call sign for women. Um, But modern life has made it for everyone. And we've been sold a bill of goods that this idea that there's this place we can get to where everything's in order. But the reality is balance isn't a destination. It's something that you have to do every day. And so our philosophy around work-life balance is that if you want to achieve a lot at work, it's okay to be out of balance. If you're doing that one thing, you're going to be kind of saying no to stuff and there's going to be some chaos around it, but you're really doing something amazing with the most important thing. But in your life, your health, your spiritual life, your personal relationships, you attend to those a lot more closely. You don't neglect the little things for a long time because they just may not be there for you when you get back. You know, when I go on a trip and I'm away from my kids, I will immediately try to get time back. Not like that's a replacement, but I want to get back in sync with them as fast as I can. Um, it's, it's, it's just a different philosophy for the different areas of your life. Um, there's a quote, if I can share it, and it's from a thriller writer, you know, um, James Patterson, but he gave us permission to share it in the book and it kind of said it better than anything else about work. Imagine life as a game in which you're juggling five balls. The balls are called work, family, health, friends, and integrity, and you're keeping all of them in the air. But one day you finally come to understand that work is a rubber ball. If you drop it, it will bounce back. But the other four balls, family, health, friends, and integrity, are made of glass. If you drop one of these, it will be irrevocably scuffed, nicked, perhaps even shattered. And I get emotional just like reciting that, but it's, it's so true. I think that we, in our strive for balance, either we're destined for just being average at everything, or people are trying to be exceptional And they believe that they can live out of balance too long and they make sacrifices in the areas that matter most, which are actually those non-work areas. So that was kind of our treatise on it. We told people to stop seeking balance and start doing things to actively rebalance their life in those areas that matter most. Did that cover what you wanted to? Because that was an emotional chapter for us when we wrote it. Yeah, it's terrific. Love it. Jay, what are some of the questions that 
we need to be asking ourselves. I think the book makes a really good point that if we want better answers in life, we have to ask ourselves better questions. How do we know what are the questions we should be asking ourselves? Well, in general, you want to ask bigger questions. Um, And I think people fall prey to answering small questions of their lives. You know, how could I get a little raise this year versus asking for what they actually want? You know, I would really like to make six figures in the next five years. What would it take for me to do that? So whatever the actual question you're asking, we did provide a framework um, that's kind of proven in our world to work. And it's What's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? Um, It narrows your focus down to a single outcome. Um, It's something that you can already do, not something that you might or in the future be able to do. And it's something that's leveraged, right? Such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or necessary. And you can ask that, like, what's the one thing I can do in order to get a job promotion this year such that by doing it? And we find that when people use that framework for asking a specific question, hopefully a big one, they are much clearer about their answers. And most people actually know the answer and actually have been walking around with some guilt for not attending to it. But because they're so busy doing all that stuff, they don't stop to actually contemplate the really important issue that they're, they, they maybe could give more time to. Yeah, this is just a terrific focusing question, and it's really what the book is all about. So I would encourage everyone listening to grab a copy of the book. Jay, tell listeners where they can learn more about you, the book, and the projects that you're up to these days. Sure. And and just before I say that, thank you on behalf of me and Gary for the kind words on the book. We did work hard on it, and we really wanted to keep it simple so that people could internalize it and do stuff. It's not just ideas. We want people to be able to take action. So um, if people want to find out more, um, I'd encourage them to visit theonething.com with the number one. Um, We have lots of free materials, um, some great tools for habit formation. If you have a New Year's resolution that you're maybe not getting along, you know, we might encourage you to take a 66-day challenge and try to form that first great financial habit for your year. So theonething.com would be the best place to go. Jay, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was such a pleasure. And I hope you enjoyed the interview and can use some of the concepts from The One Thing to improve your life and finances. I know it certainly improved mine. If you're enjoying the show, please let me know by subscribing. It's free and taking a minute to submit a quick five-star review on iTunes to keep the money conversation going with a really terrific and very smart community of people. Join my private Facebook group called Dominate Your Dollars. To request your invitation, visit Dominate Your Dollars on Facebook or send me a text message right now for immediate access. Just text DOLLARS to the number 33444. I hope to see you in the group. You can also visit lauradadams.com to learn more about me and to email your money question, feedback about the show, or ideas for future episodes. That's all for now. I'll talk to you next week, courtesy of Money Girl, your guide to a richer life. Justin and so good. 
thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.